gospel reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. May we hear and understand what the scriptures are teaching us today. Amen. From the tablets to the temple. Now, which tablets would that be? Well, the tablets of stone for the Ten Commandments, of course. And which temple? Well, the one that Jesus went in and threw all the money changers out of. Okay, so where are we with this? Well, I want to tell you about Zora Neale Hurston. I love this part in her book, Moses, Man of the Mountain. It blends the story of Moses and the Israelites in the book of Exodus with the Moses of black folklore, writing from an Afro-American perspective. And I love this particular passage. Moses lifted the freshly chiseled tablets of stone in his hands and gazed down the mountain to where Israel waited. He knew a great exultation. Now men could be free. They had something of the essence of divinity expressed. They had the chart and compass of behavior. They need not stumble into blind ways and injure themselves. This was bigger than Israel. It comprehended the world. Israel could be a heaven for all men forever by these sacred stones. With flakes of light still clinging to his face, Moses turned to where Joshua waited for him. Joshua, I have laws. Israel is going to know peace and justice. Isn't that a wonderful passage? I just love the way that she put that. And then there is Martin Luther's take on the Ten Commandments. He says this, These aren't chiseled rules to be used in judging others or keeping our nation in good order. God has just delivered Israel from bondage, and now God explains what will be required to stay free. There is such a thing as holiness, as a deep desire to fulfill God's will. I believe that the commandments are not meant to be chains or to be used to keep some people in power over others. Rather, they are a safety net. They are actually a path to freedom. Or, as Brevard Childs says, the intent of the commandments is to engender love of God and love of neighbor. Now then, how can we look at them again? That is, 
without some kind of over-exaggerated authoritarian misuse of God's law as a way to keep some people more important and powerful than others. Well, let's start. I'm going to go through some of these commandments a bit and just chat about them. No other gods? Luther clarified that our God is whatever motivates us, changes our mood, embodies the good life. So who is your God? No images of God. We are made in God's image, and Jesus is the perfect image of God. So other creature-like images, the Egyptian or the Wall Street golden bowl or other golden things, you name it, mislead us. Remember the Sabbath. Can we switch off our gadgets and rest? Don't kill. Jesus went deep, explaining that anger is an interior kind of murder. And in our rancorous culture, where anger management is a big thing, aren't we rabid killers? No adultery. In a culture where sex as impulse, pleasure, and self-fulfillment is all over the media, Jesus said, if you harbor lust in your heart, you are an adulterer. No condemnation there. Just as in that moment in John's Gospel, Jesus encounters an adulterer to set her free. No coveting. Coveting is the engine of capitalism. But God would liberate us from the stranglehold of always wanting more, or really always wanting what is new and different. I don't want more iPhones. I want the latest iPhone. <laughs> so what should we want? We should want God, Creator, and Christ, Redeemer, and Spirit, Comforter. So it's time to set our priorities. Time to reflect and return to what's important, priorities. During the season of Lent, we give things up in an effort to prioritize our lives once again by decluttering and focusing on that which we should be more grateful for. And that, that is exactly what Jesus did that day in the temple. Clearly, Jesus was angry. And so in our gospel text, Jesus was cleaning up cleaning the house of the things and the people cluttering it and making it into something other than a place of worship as it was intended. At the time, the things needed for worship were no longer personal. People had stopped bringing their own cows, sheep, and pigeons, which they had raised at home, and with care because there was a danger of their livestock dying on the long journey to Jerusalem. At first, to ensure that they made it to Jerusalem with a living cow, sheep, or goat for sacrifice, people would bring with them two or even three animals rather than just one. It was a long and a difficult journey to the place of worship for Passover, and with livestock, the economic loss endured for Passover could be pretty significant. It made sense then for a devoted worshiper to provide livestock to all worshipers in case someone's pigeon or cow or sheep didn't survive the journey to the temple. It would be nice to think that this sense of devotion to worship and taking care of and providing for the least of these was what was in the minds of those who set up shop near the temples. But this wasn't the case. Instead, those who set up shop beside and in the temple courtyard were people who saw a need from which they could profit. 
Savvy, business-minded farmers set up stands with grain to be sold for grain offerings and livestock for sacrifices. As a result, people no longer needed to take such a big risk. They could sell a cow at home and then bring the money with them to buy a cow at the temple. And what was once a side market eventually took over the temple of God. Sound familiar? People had started cutting corners, and they were looking for easier and easier ways to do the sacrifice. And by doing so, they had lost the essence of value in the ritual acts of sacrifice. This continues to happen in our world today. I imagine that Jesus knew the culture and the need for animals to sacrifice. I imagine Jesus knew that the market by the temple could have begun as a service, but turned into an exploitation of the people of God, and especially of the house of God. The Jews who had witnessed Jesus overturning the tables and upsetting sales questioned Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus answers, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, this is a difficult thing to imagine, let alone comprehend, for the Jews who were challenging Jesus because the temple in question had been under construction for 46 years. It took 46 years to build up this place of worship. So they thought, how could Jesus build it up again in only three days? Of course, we understand now that Jesus and the Jews were talking about two different things. Their priorities were different. The Jews were referring to the upset of the temple's daily functions. It was profitable for the temple to have the money changers and the farmers selling their goods. Meanwhile, Jesus was referring to the hearts of the people. Jesus, in overturning the tables and making a whip out of cords, had called out a brokenness in the temple, which the people had grown comfortable with. Jesus called attention to the manner in which people had been approaching worship and furthering their relationship and dependence on God. In this passage, they were no longer praying and seeking God's guidance to provide safe travel for them and their livestock to and from Jerusalem. They had mistakenly assumed that well, they made it to the temple to worship and sacrifice because they had worked hard and provided for themselves without even acknowledging God. When they cut costs and cut out the risk of losing their livestock, they also cut out that sense of urgency and care for the journey. When the sacrifice did take place, they didn't see the cow they had fed and washed and cared for over the years. Rather, their sacrifice was bought, purchased. They were not giving up something of value to them in making the sacrifice because there was no personal attachment. It had become merely a transaction, a transaction with the money changer or a transaction with the farmer who sold the livestock. And now they were making just a transaction with God. They had upheld their part of the covenant they had taken the journey, just like their ancestors before them had done. They had sacrificed, just like their ancestors before them had done. It had become a sacrifice 
merely to appease God, or maybe something done just out of habit. Jesus calls out the money changers and those who sell sacrifices. Think about those in Luther's time who sold indulgences. But further, Jesus calls out everyone for their manner of worship. The covenant between God and God's forgetful people was at stake. Now, here's a very important part of all of this. In Jesus Christ, all of those laborious, expensive temple mechanisms by which people came to the temple, chip in for an offering, and place the offering on the altar of God, just as Scripture tells them to do, and the priest takes their offering and offers it up to God, all that is being ended in Jesus. Now, we have a way to talk to God and a way to be with God ourselves. It is provided by God. It is Jesus Christ, Word of God, Son of God. Perhaps we need to re-examine our priorities and be sure that God is once again at the center of our lives, not just some sort of sideline transaction. Where have we cut corners in our discipleship, in our worship, in our relationship with God? Take note, much later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And he also says later, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The ways of religion, our buildings, our altars, our priests, those are our conventional ways to God. They are our constructs. And at their best, they are helpful ways whereby we are made to feel close to God. These ways of religion, these spiritual practices, can be seen as gifts of God, a sign of God's determination to connect with us. But in Christ, God has given us a much more direct, visible, and even bodily way whereby we can connect with God and God can connect with us. That's what incarnation is all about. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is giving us a very different definition of truth. Now, the truth about God has become a human being and has moved in with us. Jesus has not come to tell us the truth or point us toward the truth. I am the truth, he says. Truth is more than an idea. Truth is personal. A Jew from Nazareth who lived briefly, died violently, rose unexpectedly, and returned to resume the conversation. God doesn't wait for us to discover truth. God comes as the truth who speaks, who calls us to follow. Now the truth speaks for himself. Jesus is the temple. I believe you know this. You have experience right here with this church community and sometimes beyond the bounds of this church, Jesus coming to you and being present. You experience whenever you read a biblical text and you are moved by that text and are led to say, now I understand. That's a visit from Jesus, a visit from God, a visit from Spirit. We asked God to show up. God does so as the incarnate word. God with a name, a face, God speaking. God is still speaking today.
What's the point of Jesus Christ, God with a body, coming among us? John's answer to this is fellowship, camaraderie, communion, fellowship with the Creator and the Redeemer. In a few weeks, we will follow Jesus to his trial, where the governmental and religious authorities will render a verdict against him. In the guise of protecting their religion and in the very real sense of protecting their perceived power, they will condemn him. They will horribly torture his body. He will be nailed down to a cross. That's the human verdict, the end of God's temple, this bodily meeting place between us and God. But just wait three days and we will discover God's infinite determination to be in fellowship with us. The temple shall be raised. Amen. Amen.